Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Words of Martin Riggs, we're back, we're bad, you're black, I'm mad. Uh, only some of that is true in this instance. It's not not really relevant. And how much of it was necessary either? Very, very little. It's good, to, for it then. It's good to speak to you, Graham. Uh, yeah, baby. I took some time off the last couple of weeks. You and your golf. You and your golf. Uh, well, me and Donald had to shoot some holes. And Donald and I missed... A fantastic weekend of uh, La Liga action. And I believe in my absence, it's become traditional to quote Graham back at Graham. <laughs> so I am going to remind socios um, that you predicted that the most interesting match of the weekend may well be Betis versus Valencia. And I think you approved correct, sir. That's not quoting me back at me because I, I never used the phrase may well be. It stood out a million miles. First of all, a goal fest, because prior to their 29-goal thriller, how, how many did they actually share? Was it nine? They'd, if you amassed the two league um, totals, um, they'd played 14 times two sides, and it was touching 50 goals. Mm. Um, last time out, Valencia had played an absolute bosker of a game at home to Athletic. It had been 3-2. Um, Betis had gone on the road and had absolutely, in my view, deserved a win. Um, at the Anoeta against Real Sociedad, but due to certain unforeseen defensive circumstances, had only drawn four four <laughs> defences on top. So I'm laughing because how do I have the gall to, to sort of claim it was in any way visionary to say that Betis against Valencia might be entertaining? But my my eagerness to see the game and my um, use of the evening express to say. Uh, whatever you do, watch this game. You can thank me on Monday. I rabbited out this line three different times in the space of 24 hours because something else has happened. Um, it, w- anybody who bothered to watch the Benito Villamarín game um, on Sunday night would not have been entertained simply by the fact that there was nine goals. I think there were nine goals in the City-Stoke game, weren't there? I just forget how many Stokes scored. It wasn't it 7-2, wasn't it? It was 7-2. It was a completely and, different kind of nine-goal game. Yeah. That's, that's exactly my point. I think that people are rightly thrilled about there's one goal where the ball moves from City's own penalty area all the way up to a beautiful working around the um, Stoke box and a goal whereby you see positional play. You see football that's 
pretty much, apart from the colour of the strip, identical to the very best of his Barcelona era, and probably a football that is more intricate even than any of his Bayern teams played. But, you know, it wasn't really a contest. Even when Stoke scored twice, there was never any destination for the points other than Manchester City. The dominant side was Manchester City. And I know that people might have said if, if they glimpsed in at the Benito Villa Marina at the time when it's 4-0, they just, well, it's exactly the same. Well, it hadn't been. Betis had been in the match, absolutely clear in the match, missed a penalty. Um, at 2-0. I think, I, think I think you always knew that as soon as the, the 4-1 goal went in, even though some fans had left, it's such a an interesting team with such a brilliant coach in Kiki City and, and, and a, a stadium, a venue that has come alive with self-belief again. You've got the president saying, we should be bigger and better than Sevilla. This first side that's been a bit of a yo-yo up and down between the divisions in recent years, um, hasn't won a trophy for at least a decade and a half, whereby you've been used to chaos um, being far more addictive than, than victory. And yet this comes back to the element, one of the elements I was talking about that made it obvious that the game was going to be brilliant. First of all, it was going to be a competition. Nobody will have it easy at Betis this season. Secondly, each team has been taken from the doldrums, from looking like they might be in a mess last May, to have been constructed really, really well. Betis on much less of a budget, but they appointed Sarah Ferrer. Sarah Ferrer, you're used to, and only read the Barca book that we published jointly together, the three of us, would remember that he's a guy who built this tremendous Real Betis side that took Bobby Robson's Barca to the cup final in 96-7 into extra time. Figo and Pizzi played absolutely brilliantly for Barcelona to repel a Betis side of Finidi and Alfonso, who at certain stages looked like they were going to win. It was held in the Bernabeu. It was the last time that the Barca anthem himno has belted out around the venue because in theory it was a neutral venue. Juan Gaspar, the president, vice president of Barcelona that day, was also in the Spanish FA, and he went up to the guy in the music booth and said, just play that on repeat or you lose your job. And Sarah Ferrer was that guy. So impressive was his work with Betis that Barca hired him. He came in at a, a football director role and a coaching role. Um, it would have been him, I guess, who might have begun to bring through Puyol, and although Iniesta made his full debut under Van Hal, Iniesta's promotion would have begun and recognition would have be- begun under Sarah Ferrer. And he's had spells other, in other teams, Neil, but it, it's unquestionably at Betis that his home is, his spiritual home is. And he's a good, intelligent, safe pair of hands at a club where they've been riven by um, buyouts, fan demonstrations, I, a president who I think is just a boorish, belligerent idiot, um, long gone now. And Sarah Ferrer's in charge. And that has given them a vertebrae of common sense from the top of the club down to the bottom. They've appointed the right coach, who Sarah Ferrer has got absolute faith in, in Kiki Sitien, who's worked throughout his career, built to a, probably, I think, a climax at, um, at Las Palmas. And... He's a devotee of the Cruyff ideals in football. And it means that at Betis, where they don't simply want to overtake Sevilla, maybe win a trophy, 
sample some European football as they did. Remember in the Champions League, drawn in a group with Chelsea, they beat. They they want to play with flair. They're, that's something that is part of this um, hard to define, impossible to grasp, but nonetheless true club identity. You know, if you talk about a club identity, people could begin to talk about Chelsea's identity, Man United's identity. AC Milan's identity, Hertha Berlin's identity after this weekend. Betis have one too. And it's of flair and daring and attacking and flowing football in Kiki City. And they've got the right guy. And they've signed well. Joaquin is playing um, for a guy who should be just about at the end of his career. He's playing like he's 26 again. His pace, he's, he's rediscovered pace that he hasn't had since he was 26. Guardado and he are umbilically linked in terms of ball to feet and mentally as well. Adan is playing the best football he's played since he unseated Ica Casillas at Real Madrid. Zufedal, uh, bought from Alaves, is the number one guy for winning the ball defensively in the air last season and has contributed good tackles and um, goals this season. Dormisi is, is faster than, than lightning. The more you look around the team, the more there, there are players emerging who either from the Cantera or they've been bought cheaply, and you say, I would pay to watch this guy. It's 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 an awful shame that um, Javi Garcia, ex-Real Madrid, ex-Benfica, ex-Man City, and so on and so on, is struggling with injuries right now because when he's back, they'll concede fewer goals. They'll right. be far less vulnerable. But it's well-constructed, Neil. And then you take a combination between the chief executive, who's called Alemani, and Alexanko, who built foundations of what was great under Laporta in the early years at Football Club Barcelona and was in charge of football development and, and youth football. They, they've bought exceptionally well and promoted well. They persuaded young Soler from their youth system to stay. They promoted Lato. They, pr- they persuaded Gaia to stay. They've gone, as they once did, uh, they sold their, their backup keeper to Sevilla and he went on to make an absolute legend of, his, of himself there. And they've done that. They, they went to Juventus. They bought Neto, and Neto looks as if, you know, he should be in the, you know, the European top eight, top ten goalkeepers. Um, they've revindicated Garay, uh, Murillo, who they bought late. Guedes is a is a winger, a Portuguese winger from Paris Saint Germain. You watch him playing for Valencia. It's impossible to understand, irrespective of who they've got, that he's not holding down a place at Paris Saint Germain. Zaza has got his Zaza back. You know, he looked, he was mocked after the penalty, you know, that sort of prancing Austrian parade horse run-up he did against Germany in Euro 2016. And he limped out of West Ham, you know, looking as if he was, you know, in, 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 in search of his soul. Now he's playing like a bull again. Santamina scoring goals. The confidence throughout, brilliant coach. So the recruiting and the structural appointments at both clubs have have literally taken a, a magic wand and sprinkled magic dust on them and it's it's a lesson to all other clubs that irrespective of your budget if you scout well appoint well top down and have criteria upon which you want to play upon which you want to train and and how you want to select footballers you you can make a lightning change in the matter of three four months yeah, I want to dig down a little bit and find out which of these two is getting the best return for their buck. So Valencia sit second, uh, behind only Barcelona. Um, Betis are ninth. 
just now mm. with an absolutely fantastic record of goals 17 for 17 against <laughs> only only the top two plus actually actually Real Sociedad have scored more only the bottom side have conceded more um, mm. so you know if, if you aligned their budgets if you aligned their expectations who's performing best at this point in the season Real Betis in ninth or Valencia in second Valencia pound for pound not simply because they're second Valencia pound for pound because what Betis want, what the, I mean, the, the phrase that they're using, the phrase which, remember, Diego Simeone used to sort of repeat it to the media on the hour, every hour when they won the title, you know, game by game, one day at a time. Well, Betis's lemma, theme, um, mantra is avoid relegation, avoid relegation, avoid relegation, avoid relegation. Okay. Doesn't matter who you speak to, fan, um, local journalist, um, player, coach, that's all they'll say out in public. They're capable of much more. They could easily finish their Europa League place, and it would thrill me if they did. Their percentage um, achievement, given the budget, given how quickly they've had to turn things around, is very high. But the comparison with Valencia is unfair. You know, a club that was run by an owner who seemed to have, you know, football dyslexia, appointing the wrong people, not paying enough attention, alienating the fans publishing um, a financial plan which said we have to play in Europe every year for the next 15 years um, in order even just to stabilise. And every time that we qualify for Europe, we have to sell two or three of our best players. Well, that's just not going to happen. You know, it, it, it's, it's like, let's, what's the definition of madness? Is training at the same level and expecting new results. A clearer definition of madness is you know, achieving good results and then selling all the reasons for that. And that's enshrined in their published financial plan. They're in debt to local institutions. They're in debt to their majority shareholder. It was, you know, it reached a stage last season when it was a coach every two, three months. And they didn't have good enough players. And the players who were there didn't care. Now, it's, it's like a lightning strike transformation in that they're well-ordered. Marcelino is the right coach at the right time. Um, intense demanding, high standards, very good in fitness, will organise his team better. You will definitely, when we speak again, in four or five weeks, we'll see that Valencia's goal average in terms of how many they concede has gone down mm -hmm. because he will organise them. He's somebody who can take a squad and train the kinks out of them. Hello, Dave Davis. I know you're a listener. He's also somebody who gets um, intensity um, day by day and in matches. But the fact that he's been given the most talented squad he's ever had. That's what excites me. You get players who are straining at the leash to make sure they're in the team, never mind winning points, winning match bonuses, winning Marcelino's favour. It's not easy for Santimina to get in the team, yet he's scoring every time he does. There's real competition between Soler and Gaia and Lato and Pereira and Guedes for the wide positions. You know, that that is like cut the mustard every single training session, never mind every game, or you don't start. Rodrigo has never scored as regularly in his life as he has now, 6-6, six and six, plus starting for Spain and scoring for Spain um, during the international break. And isn't it might sound like I'm trotting out, you know, it, this is list journalism. It's not intended to be. It's intended to paint a picture whereby something genuinely special is happening. I stop short because of how 
volatile an institution it is. I stopped short of saying that they're title contenders. Um, had they been playing like this for a season and a half, given what's going on at the two biggest clubs and at Atleti, there might have begun to be an argument. This time, that's that's too much to ask of them, but they should finish top four. And it sounds as though they've, they're one of the teams that have got more than the potential to bloody one of the other guys' noses. You know, they could have a, if they don't win it, they're going to have a say in it, right? Well, I mean, like they went to they went to the Bernabeu, and before we were clear, because Condogbia, who's been the hit of the midfield and is an outstanding player, just outstanding. You know, one of these guys who's a beast physically. In terms of a race, in terms of a jump, in terms of, you know... Incredible header, incredible header to open the scoring in this match. fabulous goal. Yeah, he made it look as if he was only standing on his tiptoes. But he can play. His vision of where to put the ball and what the tempo of a match should be, when to accelerate, when to take a risk, when not to, when to try and smother. Very, very high level indeed. He puts even in, in Zonzi in the shade, and that is saying something for me. And he'd been there, when they went to Bernabeu, he'd been there, I think, three training sessions. Players were all calling him Kondo after three training sessions. He scored, of course, at Real Madrid, and they drew 2-2. So in terms of bloodying noses, I know you were talking about doing damage to the top three in terms of who's the champion, because each of the other two sides have got to face Valencia twice. Madrid still have to go to the Mestalla, where they regularly lose. Cost Ancelotti his job. Um, It cost uh, Zidane his winning streak last season. So, Valencia aren't simply jokers wild at the moment. They are somebody who, if any of the fans of the big inside view that are listening, if you can't get to Spain, make sure you watch them on the television every single week because you're going to get you're going to get repaid a dozenfold. If you can get to Spain, the Mestalla is one of those grounds where it's fabulous to visit. It's a brilliant atmosphere. It's one of the old-fashioned grounds built up in an urban area with bars and restaurants around it, a real buzz in how you approach it, a metro to get you there. The old stadium inside has been beautified by this this skin around the stadium where all their trophies and their great games and their legendary players. It's it's your total football experience. Still relatively affordable to get in, and there are almost always tickets for tourists. It's just, you know... Valencia right now are the reason that you and I and Martin and Chris do this job. That's as simple as I can put it. Fantastic. Look, that was unbelievable. Um, you know, you, you mentioned list journalism. To me, that, that creates more of a, a sort of story journalism of where these two kind of clubs, what path they had to trot to get to three, so. three, three and, six. And let me postscript. Let me postscript. Just an in and out. Guedes and Carlos Soler are going to be exceptional footballers in in European terms over the next decade. We'll be talking about Soler, who's come through the Valencia youth system, I think it's from Alicante, and Guedes, the Portuguese, who's playing up, owned by Paris Saint-Germain and playing on loan, uh, predominantly wide at the moment from Valencia. These these are gems, Neil. Probably probably scored the pick of the nine goals. It's not an easy competition, but Guedes' goal, which was a 2-0 goal, was... Yeah, Probably. he finishes brilliantly. He's powerful. When he runs, he doesn't run like a winger. He's like, you know, I know I'm going past you, and I, I, I there's not a lot of frills about it. And once I'm past you, I'm going to finish. He's also got tremendous assist potential in that he's got a pinpoint cross, and he seems to be able to cross with very little space and very little back lift. These, these, are, these are rare abilities, but when you combine them all, he's a standout footballer. Okay, so the teams taking most note 
of Valencia's performance against Betis and their form in general must be the the other three in the top four, Atleti Madrid, Barcelona and Real Madrid. Two of them met. You tipped up a victory for Atleti at home. Uh, it's not the way that it turned out, but Barcelona dropped points. How did you see? Do you think they got what they deserved in that match, Barcelona? No, no, they should have won. Um, you know, the first half went with a pattern that I'd, that I'd imagined in that Atleti were ferocious. They carried less of the FIFA virus in. And the game plan was smother Barcelona, but be brutally effective when we get the ball. And you saw how the, the sensational goal from Saul was presaged by Stegen needing to make two big, big saves from Griezmann. Another one, Correa nearly got away, but Umtiti was on him like, you know, a hawk. Um, without question, although Barcelona had some minor opportunities in the first half, Atleti were the better side, had the better strategy, and also were more effective. But there was a reason for that beyond what I'd anticipated, which was Atleti at the Wanda, Atleti with less damage done by the FIFA virus, um, Simeone desperate for his first ever league win um, against FC Barcelona, never beat him in the Cup, never beat him in the Super Cup, never beat him in the league, two, vic- two home victories in the Champions League, but that's, you know, damn little return for 25 shots at the, at the task. But in the second half, Valverde corrected the mistake he'd made, and that's what I was referring to. Valverde got his selection wrong. He got his tactics wrong. I can never understand, Neil, when the big, big clubs in Spain are now like England. They, they close the doors to you. You get in for an occasional press conference. You get in for 15 minutes before uh, Champions League matches. You, you don't get what I came here for, which is that perpetual ability to study training and understand what's going on. You do at the smaller clubs. That's still available at maybe uh, Villarreal, at Betis, and uh, um, at Sevilla sometimes too. But even though the doors were closed, I was able to see some of the training during the international break. And what stood out was Valverde has introduced new drills which combine explosive fitness and finishing power. And I watched um, Sergio Roberto, Dennis Suarez, and Delafeo powering through these exercises and looking as sharp as I've ever seen them. Yet none of them started. Now, that seemed to me already a mistake. Semedo, who's inexperienced and for whom this wasn't going to be a game where he had space to run into because it was a game where Atleti were doing that themselves, holding back a little bit, asphyxiating, pressing, and not being caught on the counter. Semedo loves that game, will love Camp Nou matches. But this was a game just cut from cloth for it to suit Sergio Roberto at right back at right wing at right midfield wherever you want to play him his ability to move through the pitch at the right time to beat players with a dribble to connect with these passing triangles that Barcelona are famous for and to make a score particularly given that he had two weeks off to refine his sharpness to get in tune with the boss Valverde it just made no sense to me whatsoever that Gomez, this Portuguese guy who's had nothing but misfortune in how he's used, what sides he's been performing in at Football Club Barcelona when he hits the post rather than finishing, he has looked like a player desperately needed to be played in the right position, not shuffled around all over the pitch, and two, to just believe in himself a little bit more. Yet he's asked to play out of position again at right wing when they've got the ball, right midfield when they don't. 
He doesn't have the pace to go past a defender. He is short on confidence, and he has none of the, that that ability to glide with the ball that Sergio Roberto has. And it, with that, this is constructive criticism of Valverde. But in that decision, he handed the first 50 minutes to Diego Simeone. And I said that before. I said it during the match. I was commentating on the match. This isn't Monday morning quarterbacking or retrospective wisdom. As soon as Gomez was put back into midfield, Delafeu was put on at right wing and Sergio Roberto came on at right back. Barcelona were unrecognisable. And in my view, irrespective of the Juventus performance, Neil, they produced the best, you know, 40 minutes of the season. It was absolutely fantastic to watch. It gave you an idea that the players are all tuned into Valverde, that they bought into his idea and the... The whole was greater than some of the parts. It was absolutely terrific to watch. And they created sufficient number of chances and pitch domination that really, until Sergio Roberto crossed for Luis Suarez to score, I had absolutely believed that they would equalise. And at that point, I was certain there was just about enough time for them to score and win. didn't turn out that way. It was just an absolutely fascinating night. And the way in which Cholo Simeone changed his team and um, particularly in my view, uh, Correa off and Gaetan on, and Partey on without taking Gabby off, was to pack midfield, hold on to 1-0, and to not speculate, not to try and risk for the three points. Now, that's not a crime. They played a good game up to that point, and you can opt for that and say, that'll do me if you want. It just turned out to be the wrong move. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. We should stick with Sergio Roberto for a little bit. His his cross for Suarez was one that would have centre forwards everywhere salivating, just absolutely perfect. Over the defender, coming back onto the centre forward's head. But the guy on the other end of it, in the build up to the to the game on, on our podcast, you said that there's something wrong with Luis Suarez right now. I think you used the phrase that he has his boots on the wrong feet. And to me that's still seen the case despite his defining moment what I was explaining is that he's played as if his feet are the wrong way around during the season and that you know he got so frustrated Neil um, that even if Sergio Roberto produced a salivating army of those types of crosses he'd have had a triangular head to put it over the bar with but against Las Palmas it was a match where there was no fans in and Luis Suarez needs the fuel of being angry at somebody to play well even if it's manufactured and usually it's the linesman or the opposing centre half or whatever but when he gets angry with himself and rips his own shirt, a la Bruce Banner, you wouldn't like my form when I'm angry kind of thing, which he did against Las Palmas. Because there were no fans there, the microphones pick him up, shouting, Luis! at himself, and taking the sh- his Barca shirt and ripping it in half. So you, don't, you don't need my words to tell you that. A gentle hint of uh, self-frustration there. As a, speaking as an analyst, I would say, you know, and that's because if he gets his body shape... W- one way, and his foot right, and the ball comes to him, he strikes it, and it still goes off like it's made of a triangle. Something's wrong. And the thing that's wrong is that he had an out-and-out injury, which cost him a little bit of match sharpness. And it, it's just 
inarguable in my view that he's a kilo or two heavy. Not dramatic, but for a guy who's turned 30, who needs to beat, work, live on somebody's shoulder and then beat him for paces, something happens. It's not about the sprint, it's about the reaction and then the sprint. He can't really carry any extra at all. And beyond that, the thing I mentioned um, on Friday is that he has a cyst in his knee. So what has been troubling him is mentally he's had to carry the burden of knowing that he's not quite right. A bit, bit of pain in his knee. And again, for all your claims of being a high-class footballer, you know that some of what you've got, as we like to describe you, is, is anticipation. It's in the brain. Football's played partly in the head. And Suarez's head hasn't been right. What I pointed out was, if you saw the two goals he scored against Bolivia in midweek, when they won, he finishes brilliantly for the first off his right, where he doesn't look up, he doesn't give the keeper the eyes, he just dinks it off the outside of his right foot before the keeper can get down, and it's just like sublime. It's like a, it's like a, an old gramophone record needle going in the groove. It's like, yeah, that's what that's meant to do, and you hear beautiful music. The second one's different in that he's sent away and he scurries away and he knows he's got clear of the defender and he finishes left foot across the keeper and the keeper doesn't do well. But Suarez is the type of beast where that's confidence. And and to say I, to say I was absolutely certain he'd score against Letty is just maybe a, a sliver too strong. But I knew he was not going to look the same, that he was going to look uh, as if some confidence had been some clarity and confidence had been restored and that his cutting edge was, was closer. And, and so it proved in the end, he got the best chance before his own goal um, where a lovely turn from Messi allowed him to show one way, turn good and inside out his international teammate, leave him utterly stranded, which you never see, and firing that brilliant shot that Oblak saved. And then, as you say, the, the, you know, the, the pinpoint accuracy of Sergio Roberto's cross and also the fact that you know, if you picture it, Neil, Suarez gets wrong side of Juan Fran, and that's unusual for Juan Fran. But another thing that um, Valverde's done at this stage is he's brought on Paulinho. Now, Paulinho, I think, would have started in this game, but for, you know, the jet lag of back and forward from Brazil and playing against Chile and blah, blah, blah. And he, too, is over 30. So he's one of the ones that Valverde went, I tell you what, he's my late jack in the box. Fair enough after the FIFA players, that's fine. But he comes on, and if you look in the image, when the ball comes over from Sergio Roberto and um, Suarez heads down so that the bounce beats all black, where's Savage? Where's Godin? Both of them have been drawn to Paulinho. And and there's where Valverde gets kudos again. De La Feo came on, and suddenly they had a third striker. Dembele being absent is not simply important because Dembele himself is absent. It's that when they're playing principally with two strikers, it's really, really obvious to defenders what's going to happen and when the ball's going to be given to Messi. And given that Suarez has been easier to close down, it's little wonder that for three, maybe three and a half games, Barcelona have been puffing and panning to get over the line. They've been winning, but not with Elan. De La Feo comes on, irrespective of the fact there's a broken game and there's width, automatically the left-back can't tuck in. He's getting by the left back. He's cutting the ball back for Messi and Suarez. The the back four of Atleti are stretched. The game is also stretched um, vertically as well as horizontally. That helps to give Sergio Roberto the right midfield space from which he crosses for the goal. And Paulinho's thrown in, thrown on to occupy the two centre halves. And it's like you know you sit in front of a fruit machine and four bars come up for Valverde. The, the thing is, 
to be an elite coach, you need to visualize those four, four bars dropping before the game starts and say, I know what I've got to do from minute one, not in minute 50. He's proved against Getafe, where he changes the game and both subs score, Dennis Suarez and Paulinho. And he proved again, I would certainly say, at Girona. And now, um, in this game that we're talking about, each of his three subs makes a big, big difference. It's getting it right, right from the start. It will make a difference about whether Valverde is a, is a big winning coach at Barcelona or not. You mentioned Barcelona's earlier escape from Getafe with a victory. Um, the same gauntlet was laid down at the feet of their eternal rival at the weekend, and a similar outcome was achieved. Yeah, you, you, you're talking about the fact that you know it's form of a Madrid derby. There's a FIFA buyers from Madrid too, and they come away with a win, right? One win, right? Yeah, Getafe are, are an important addition to the La Liga, and I didn't expect them to be. You know, they were um, the Marie Celeste of clubs. In that, um, do you remember they, they started making what we like to call adult movies? <laughs> no, so, stop, stop, stop. Tell the story. Well, they, they have no fans, and um, little wonder the way that they play or how attractive they were. And they've got a ridiculous president called Angel Torres. Um, Diablo Torres would be closer to it, who's a Real Madrid socio and loves Madrid and has Hitafe's little play thing. And honestly, teams went to that little sort of windy satellite town um, in what was an empty stadium often and gave up just out of apathy. And therefore, when Hitafe went down, I was like, wow, fabulous. Let's get let's get an old grand up. Let's get let's Oviedo up. Let's get Cadiz up, let's get atmosphere, let's get tradition. They come back up, and I, I'd be a dirty, stinking liar if I said I was enthusiastic. Yet, what's come up is as if their sort of, their porn film promotion thing has worked. And they, they actually, Getafe, the football club, started to, they made some sort of football-related adult entertainment movie, which is out on YouTube, anybody can see it. And, and the joke was that it was meant to promote um, higher fertility rate amongst the season ticket holders and a whole new generation of children and a big new support. And that was the idea. Uh, look what you could have won. It's a real sort of interesting theory and I don't think it was originally in the statutes of football as laid down in the 19th century. But nonetheless, now that they're back, the, the Border Lasses football that got them up uh, via the playoffs has been exciting enough and um, organised and strategic enough that, that fans have come and stayed. They've, they've, they've got behind Hitafe. And it wasn't simply the fact that this was a big game against Real Madrid. Um, the atmosphere has been good all season. They played with the same organisation and energy against Barcelona. The result was the same. They, you know, they, they lost it by a sneaky narrow 2-1 margin. Gaku, the Japanese player who ran his legs off against Barcelona and scored that brilliant goal, wasn't available this weekend. That diminished the cutting edge. I was a little bit surprised that Angel didn't start um, for Bordelas' team. But they played with the same um, complete self-confidence and not simply trying to asphyxiate Real Madrid. It was not like the little guys saying, we've got 11 men on the goal line. Like um, Who else was trying to come up with that theory at the week? Oh, yeah, Mourinho. Um so Hidafi kind of showed more daring and ambition than United did at Anfield um, this weekend. The difficulty is that Benzema's back, Ronaldo's firing. Benzema's movement and his touch and his 
space creation for Ronaldo has always made Ronaldo a better footballer. Um, by the t- talking about Valverde substitutions, by the time that Isco comes on, the game is broken, is open. Um, his ball to Ronaldo for the win is simply the coronation of, I forget whether it's 22 or 25 minutes, whatever Isco gets. Even in that time, he takes the game completely by the scruff of the neck and is magisterial. Um, he should be, in my humble view, top five Ballon d'Or right now. Um, I'm not sure how the voting will end up by the time we see the results in January. But if you know, if people have been paying attention, it goes in the world's top five footballers right now. And, and to be honest, I'd far sooner watch him than watch Neymar, as a personal point of view. So Madrid do what champions need to do. Um, Benzema gets his first league goal of the season. Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo gets his first league goal of the season. Sergio Ramos has been ill and been vomiting before the game plays on, plays more than adequately. Zidane does this thing that only the greats do. I, I, I'd advocate now that not since Alex Ferguson at his peak has any manager of one of the world's great clubs taken such risks or controlled risks about who and when to rotate. You you remember, um, even though you're still in your 20s, about the time when you know rotating was a word that confused people and, and nobody could understand why players needed to spin round and all that kind of stuff. And no, 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 it's just some play some of the time, some play the next time. This concept was new and then it was wrong. Remember, it was wrong. You always play your best team. And in the 70s, every Liverpool side and every Leeds side only ever played 12 men a season, all that. Now we know that the, the travel, the athleticism, the ability to get an edge, uh, rotating your team intelligently is here forever. But it's how to do it and with whom to do it and against which opposition. So there is Sedan knowing that the big, big threat that he's going to face this week is Harry Kane. So what does he do? The two players who will most squeeze Kane are Casemiro and Varane. Casemiro has been playing um, World Cup football for Brazil. He played 180 minutes, plus all the jet lag. He's rested against Getafe. Varane, not, uh, unlike Ramos, not sick, not dizzy, rested. You know, his pace and his power and his height are the, the type that they'll ask him to go tighter on Kane and Ramos to sweep. And they're both rested and they still get the two three points against Getafe. And away win in difficult circumstances at a ground where Barcelona nearly dropped points. And in the end, it's a net gain of two points for them because Barcelona only draw. You know, that's a pretty a pretty fecund weekend for old Zizou, no? When you say it like that, it sounds like he had a plan all along. Oui, oui, monsieur. And that's just about us for part one of today's recording. The, 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 that's all, folks. Well, not quite. We're going to carry on talking. Um, we're going to do a part two on this week's Champions League fixtures, and in particular, a close focus on Real Madrid, Tottenham Hotspur, and all that that means. But for now, live from Barcelona, thank you very much, Graham. Yep, um, for everybody listening, it's been a pure joy to express my pure joy at Spanish football, how I love you. And um, for the socios, for socios only, Neil, let's talk Champions League in a couple of minutes. See ya. See ya.